Is there something that you would rather be doing? Is there somewhere you would rather be living? I'm Kat Caldwell-Myers, and if this is you, I totally get you. I have lived a lot of my life in those states, and I've done a lot of work around understanding what drives us in the adventure paradox, why we don't do the thing we're really called to do, and what happens when we do or discover that thing is right here, right now. Let's go. All righty. Good morning. <laughs> Good morning. Cat here. Right? Cat here. And I'm in Idaho today, but I have a very special guest with me coming in from Dublin. Michelle Stowe, what time is it in Dublin? So it's half three in the day here. So yeah. I think it's a few hours ahead, isn't it, Kat? Yeah, so I'm, I'm afternoon time now and you're on early morning. I love it. Well, top of the morning or top of the <laughs> afternoon to you? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> oh, I'm so excited to meet with you. And we've had a few reschedules going on with time zones and different things. And I just want to introduce everyone to how I found you and how this conversation came together. I was looking up the acronym SCALE. Yeah. And I had some different ideas about something I was thinking about using it for. And I found your acronym and thought, yeah. this is incredible and more people need to hear this acronym. Will you begin by introducing that acronym, where it came from, and just telling sure. us a little bit more about it? Of course, of course. Yeah. So that's Cass. Now, the work I do, Cass, is around restorative practice. So working in, usually I work in a school context and primarily, I guess, the SCALE acronym kind of came to life because I was seeking to articulate that in something explicit. Sometimes in this work I do in schools, restorative practice, by building positive relationships, nurturing healthy communities on purpose, intentionally, explicitly, and conflict resolution. There's a breakdown, responding in a way that kind of brings people towards one another. But what I found was, especially in the work I was doing in schools, we tend to focus a lot more on the responsive aspect, conflict resolution and responding to conflict. And really the foundation isn't there, I guess, trying to build a reservoir of good relationships on purpose first and foremost. So I was thinking there was lots of explicit frameworks to help schools with the conflict resolution part. So there was a conflict literacy, restart of questions, restart of language, but there wasn't anything for the proactive aspect. So that's like you, I was thinking, what can I do? So that's what inspired the creation of the relationship scale. So S-C-A-L-E. S was for smile, connect, ask, listen and engage. And essentially it was just to have a framework to hook that restorative practice upon. So the S for the smile, I mean, that's simple enough, but I guess in the work I do in schools, again, trying to remind people years ago, they told teachers not to smile till Christmas in teacher training and teacher colleges that you to have the stiff upper lift and this armored response and taking no mess. And the smile was to remind us to be disarm to greet people at the door with a smile as they come in and the simple things that we can forget sometimes and those simple things the moments of connection that was the smile I have the gorgeous Toni Morrison so she's one of my favorite writers and she says uh all people want to know is your eyes light up when they walk into a room so it's just those little non-verbal connected moments and the C was for connect and connect was again coming back to that intention 
of seeking to connect on purpose. So sometimes in schools, people are misunderstanding restorative practice. The work I do is do what I say, but I'll ask you nicely. Or we were still going for conformity. And as I know, the intention isn't conformity. The intention is connection, connection proactively. And then also seeking connection in times of conflict, because conflict can be an opportunity for connection. So that was the C was for connect. A is for ask. So that idea of asking proactive opportunities to connect. So let's say for me in a school context, um, one of the things I would promote a lot is called like a one word quiz. So there's 30 kids and we only have a certain amount of time, but just asking questions to connect. So I might something simple like, okay, so we're just finished at the end of the day. If you could have anything for your dinner tonight, what would it be? One word quiz. I'm using a talking piece, going around the class and I'd be like fajitas and someone's like pizza or my granny stew or whatever. And it's just those little moments. Of empathy begins there where you see yourself and the other or so if there was a little challenge and then this kid said my granny's stew, I'm like, right, go on. Proactively connecting by asking questions. And then in that restorative frame, we have RP questions, the restorative practice questions that we can ask in times of challenge to bring people towards one another. So having a conflict literacy, asking questions that might support connection, empathy, accountability. So that was the A was for ask. L was for listen, S-E-A-L-E. And that idea of that deep listening, seeking, as Kobe says, listening to understand, not listening to reply. The idea that we have two ears and one mouth <laughs> and trying to listen twice as much as we speak. But that deep listening and, and in restorative practice, we use a sharing piece or a talking piece or a speaking piece to promote that active listening within the group. And then E was for engage. And that was the idea of engaging people proactively and uh, working in community, thinking about in the classroom, using relational pedagogy, ways to connect, but also in times of challenge, engaging people. If you're in the problem, you're in the solution. So it's not like, oh, I have to fix this. It's like, what do you think we should do? Have you any ideas? How do we move forward? So engaging people in the process being really, really key. And so that's where the scale came from. I keep going or do you want me to stop? I, I keep going. Yeah, you can keep, keep going, going. But I just, I just want to reflect on what a beautiful acronym that is and what a beautiful idea and what a beautiful thinker you are to put that together and speaker to share it with us in this way. And a few things I wrote down, that idea of instead of conformity, connection. And this has come up as a theme on the podcast recently, this idea of, especially in schools, but you can fill in the blank with any institution, sure. corporate, etc. but you need to fit into a certain box. And that the reality is you often, when people are treated like numbers, you lose the connection, the heart of yeah. who someone is or what's going on with them. And I'm quite curious to hear more about the work you're doing in schools that prompted this, because you said a lot of people are responding immediately to the conflict resolution, but they're sort of missing, I want to say, the heart of the matter. And we talk about this as a theme a lot when working with animals, where people are like, I just got to get to making them sit. And I have a rescue that we just took on this week, and she's still traumatized. It's not that important. Connection yeah. and trust, that's yeah. where we are. The bond, that's it. <laughs> sit can come later connecting and knowing that we're safe, that's where it begins. And I think especially in schools, and I'm really curious here what's going on in Dublin, a lot of children are not feeling safe. They're not feeling heard. 
and there's bullying. And I want to hear more about the different issues, the conflicts that were going on that maybe inspired scale. Yeah. I think it is a a human maybe issue, but that feeling of disconnection, that growing disconnection in our world and not necessarily feeling that sense of belonging. And there's many reasons and things that kind of escalate that and inform that. I guess like in many contexts, one of the needs within school is to address challenges that are occurring, like that responding to bullying behaviour or school refusal where students not wanting to go to school or not feeling connected with school. I guess trying to find an alternative in a school context to a punitive system, which might ironically, when things go wrong, you just reject, suspend, expel. And I've had the privilege of working in prison settings too. You see the school to prison pipeline, you're thinking, how's that working for us? But it is a huge paradigm shift. And I think you mentioned that thinking, that I was a nice thinker. I think thinking relationally, which you're emphasizing there too, is the key because there will be something like a scale or a start of questions. And I think that can be a helpful enabler. But thinking relationally, am I going to invest my time and energy in this? Is this worthy of my time? Is first and foremost, I think, what we're really trying to cultivate within the schools that I get to work with. And that will be the foundation. That will be the reservoir. I guess where starter practice is based on, it's a philosophy. So that was another thing that I was trying to really emphasize in the work I got to do, that it's a way of thinking. And I guess a philosophy is a belief. And a belief is a thought I have over and over again. So I do believe the more we punish kids, the five-day suspension, that will solve that problem. And like I said, if that worked for us, we wouldn't have kids in that repeated cycle. We wouldn't have the school to prison pipeline. But it's the belief that when we're in good relationships, we flourish. When we're in good relations with ourselves and with others, we do well. And one of the assumptions of that restorative lens is that we all have a deep desire to be in good relationship. And some of us know how and some of us have experienced trauma and we can't tolerate the risk of connection as easily as others. And all relationships involve risk. But the belief is essentially in the philosophy that we are profoundly relational. And the other belief is that we're interconnected. What affects one affects us all. And trying to emphasize that idea of our interconnectedness community. And the third is probably my favorite, is the belief that we're inherently good. And when things go wrong, we're not thinking that's a baddie, that's a goodie. We're thinking, well, what's happened where that showed up? Like you mentioned, the animal that's not sitting or not able to work with. Wonder what happened where that showed up? What's the context here? And looking at the needs underneath behavior. And so I think that's really the key tenets of the restorative philosophy, that relational thinking. Um, which is first and foremost, maybe what we need, that benevolent lens. Um, Parker Palmer describes it as soft eyes turn to wonder. It's a soft lens where we're thinking about what's the context here with that showing up. And that's really primarily the work that I get to do within schools, trying to support us with that philosophy, that relational thinking, and then having practices, processes, language to bring that to life. Wow. I'm so excited you went into explaining more about restorative because I had written that down wanting you to expand on it you knew obviously that I wrote it down and hear more about it and a little bit of what you were talking about relationally and that there's risk in all relationships and I'm curious to hear more about your history working with children maybe also your own personal relationships and upbringing your experiences from the heart that maybe led to this <laughs> relational they, perspective. They say you teach what you most need to learn, don't they? That's what they say. And <laughs> my sister always jokes. So maybe in the home or when I was young, there would be a lot of conflict. 
and I guess I'm the middle child always in the middle or maybe that mediator and, and she often jokes says listen you have a career because of us you know <laughs> as a conflict mediator but yeah as a child maybe I loved secondary school but as a young child my parents separated and I moved home and I moved to a new school and I did feel that disconnection and that I think has inspired maybe my commitment to this work I'd imagine and maybe the insights with all these shadows and things that happened there are gifts and I think that gift would be that benevolent lens or seeing yourself in the other person that might be struggling so I think that was my own experience and then I was a teacher I love being a teacher it's a tough job you have tough days but I really did and um, I still think of myself as a teacher so I never ever planned to leave school never ever planned to have a business that was never on the trajectory I'm really surprised that I'm eight years now I left my lovely school eight years ago to do this work full time. And when I got introduced to this work, I didn't know how to explain it. I didn't have a framework or a language to hook it upon. But on my best day, this is what I believed and this is what I practiced. And then it gave me a framework to kind of see myself in it. And that's what I wanted to do. And I did some research in this area in my own school. And when I was doing my master's in education and bringing it, I'd become a trainer and I was supporting people in my school and like myself to go on the journey. And it just kept evolving. And then I realized I couldn't honor them both properly, like teaching and committing to bringing RP to school. So I took that leap and I just felt like the right thing to do that I was doing what I was maybe meant to do in the world. So I've been so lucky. I've had so many people help me along the way. But at the start, I didn't really know I was going to make a living out of it. It was scary to leave your pensionable job. But again, I've had so many mentors and support and people that helped me light the way. And now that's what I do uh, full time in schools. And I think I've created a model and it's evolving all the time. It's iterative. I learn with the schools I get to work with, but I really believe in what I'm doing now. Wow, that is beautiful. And also touched on a very popular theme on our podcast, which is that moment of essentially crossing over and recognizing that you're called to do something else. Often it's surprising. You never thought you'd stop teaching. I also was a teacher. I love teaching. And sometimes you're in the fishbowl and you can't really see that you're in the fishbowl until you get out of the fishbowl. And it sounds like the work you were doing, you were kind of starting to jump in and out of the fishbowl. And then you realized, I'm really called. If we take the metaphor of the fish, maybe you grew feet and started wandering into the desert. (laughs) But you realize there's more than this fishbowl and that I'm still connected to the fishbowl. It's still a part of me. I'm really called to do this deeper work. And I'm curious, the fear faced some of those things you felt. And I had a great interview with a beliefologist last week. Actually, that episode just dropped, but it's those beliefs of I could never leave. And it sounds like, did you struggle with that at all? Was there any sort of back and forth as you made the transition? Or I think you said it lit up in front of you. You felt the light of where you were going. I felt a very strong pull. Um, and in a way, on reflection and hindsight, I think maybe I was a bit naive in some ways because I kept thinking, sure, I'll just work out. Like, And then worst case scenario, I'll go back to a school I loved because I was on career break at the start. I'll go back to this job I loved. But again, I didn't know I was going to make a living necessarily at it. And like I said, I had many people support me. So I did lots of different jobs at the start. Like I was working for my friend's mom. I was lecturing in Maynooth in one of the universities and I was working in CDI. I was doing different jobs to make a living. But I was able to take the risk. I guess I had the privilege. I didn't have children. I didn't have a big, heavy mortgage. So I could take the risk. But was there a tension? I don't know. Do you know? I'll tell you what. Only recently I reconnected to that belief again. It tethered for me for a while because the more my business grew and I realized, oh, I have a business. And people say, how's your business? I have a business. Oh, my God, I didn't plan to have a business. 
like that was super scary and it still is. And now I have a team that I get to work with. But then I feel this responsibility of a team that I didn't have before. And that's something that I found really hard. And I still do sometimes find hard. And then I was reconnecting. I got coaching this year. This gorgeous coach came into my life and I wanted business coaching. And he invited me to consider maybe it's not business coaching, but more where am I within the business? And I was like, that so resonates. So his coaching are two hour walks in nature. You go to the woods, you meet him, walk for two hours and kind of allow nature be your teacher in a way, reconnecting to that intention. And again, just reminding myself, sure, it will work out like things. I've had so much support, just trusting and back to trusting myself, trusting the powers that be that things will work out. And if it doesn't, I'll iterate and I'll pivot. So that allowed me less pressure this year. But it was something I struggled with going out, leaving school. And again, it was gas because I used to be in relationships all day, every day in my school with people you love when you grow up together. And I'd see the kids five days a week. And then I was talking about relationships all day, but not being in them, like in my office here. And I was like, there's something wrong here that I'm talking about relationships and community, but I'm not actually living it as much as I used to. That was hard. That's the bit of loneliness in the work, working for yourself. But this, again, I've built a team I get to work with the same schools repeatedly now. I've evolved as I've gone and I'm much happier. I'm actually living what I'm talking about more than I was at the start, going from school to school to school and just picking up and dropping down relationships like this. But they're the tensions that I sometimes feel and that I I navigate still. When I've had lots of sleep and I'm feeling good, I can manage them well. And when I don't, I have my off days like everybody. I love that. And you alluded to it a bit earlier. I think you said, on my best days. Mm. And I loved that because I think very often, in American culture anyways, we get quite focused on our worst days. Mama said there'd be days, et cetera, et cetera. And we forget the work of our best days. And what does that look like? And visualizing it and feeling it and then witnessing it when we're in it. Like, this is a really great day. Like, this is a really great conversation. This is a really great connection. This is the work I'm called to do here. Like, It's happening right now. Why don't we make more time to do that? And again, you sound like you're one of the miracle workers. (laughs) That's back to teaching what you most need to learn. So I have the theory. I'm like, I could give you all the stats, but it's a practice. What you practice grows stronger. But definitely it's trying to practice that myself all the time. I was at a Will Network, Women in Learning and Leadership brunch on Saturday. And it's a beautiful space. And I felt real buoyant after I came out. But one of the takeaways for me was, just alluding to what you're sharing, one of the advice from a speaker was having a little wins journal, just witnessing the wins, just trying to kind of download them for brain. Like, well, yeah, grand, grand, grand. But the stickability of what went wrong or what happened. And I like, yeah, that's a little practice that I could kind of bring in where I'll just manage the wins. So when the grounds come in, given out to me or whatever, I'm like, OK, where are my wins? And I can counter that negativity bias a bit. You're reminding me of something back to the scale. That scale, it's actually called our five in its full title. It's the five to one relationship scale. And the five to one relates to research by Dr. Maureen Gaffney. So she's an Irish educational psychologist. And again, you'll be very familiar, I'm sure, with the similar research. And she talks about the stickability of the negative. And in relationships, for an average relationship, you need three to one positive to negative interactions for it to be average because the one's so strong, like Velcro. And the good stuff can roll off us. And for a flourishing relationship, it's a five to one. So she talks about the five to one relationship scale. And 
when I was doing my research, we were thinking about our five to one ratio. So I was inviting teachers on the journey to think about a student X or a class X that they found difficult to connect with or they might trigger them or that could do with a bit of nurturing and just invite us to think, well, how are we getting on with our five to one? How are we getting on with our ratio? And teachers would say often like, bing, 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 bing. And we might be stuck in that one. It was very, very simple, but hugely impactful because we were then reflecting, well, how's that working for us? And how could I show up differently? And we were just thinking about the simple things we do on our best days, like you said, with the classes that we can, what do we do? Well, we smile, we engage with them, we celebrate when things go up. But sometimes we can then get so armored up that we're different and we're responding differently. And so the simple intentions of teachers would say things like that. Oh, well, listen. So I tried to smile at him in the corridor. But initially, some of the kids were a bit suspicious. Yeah, hi. Like, why are you smiling at her? But it was simple things like trying to say their name. I remember hearing this lovely kids were talking about love. And this kid says, when someone loves you, the way they say your name is different. Your name is safe in their mouth. And I'm thinking about Sadie, my little niece, that calls. And she's like, hi, Shell. And I'm like, oh my God, she loves me so much. And I love her so much. But the way she says my name, I know. And so we were thinking in school, Jack, Sarah, Sarah. Just how are we saying the name? Simple things, seeking opportunities to say the name positively. Simple things like that we were doing, thinking about our five to one. And we weren't getting fives all the time, but even a one to one or two to one. And just noticing what was the impact on the relationship? But what was the impact on the self? Because that was one of the key things. It's softer. It's more flexible. And we were just paying attention and it had a huge impact on our own well-being, our own stress levels. And it wasn't that we had magic wands and we solved all issues. We still had issues and challenges. But when we were looking through that lens, we maintained our empathic bond a little bit more. And that was very helpful for our own well-being and our own stress levels. So the five to one relationship scale is about trying to remember that negativity bias and trying to focus on connecting proactively when we can. And again, the work I do I'm thinking when I'm in the ones, I talk about giraffe and croc language. So again, inspired by Marshall Rosenberg's nonviolent communication. But it's not like the crocs are baddie and the giraffes are goodie. I'm both. How's it working for me? Usually when I'm a croc, I'm struggling. Usually I need a curly whirly, a cup of tea, someone to be nice to me. I don't need to be giving out to myself more about it. It's usually when we're in struggle, we show up that way. So again, trying to be restarted with ourselves as much as the people we work with. So I guess that's where the relationship scale and um, the five to one kind of came from. Hey, Kat, here for a quick commercial break. If you haven't heard, my book, The Adventure Paradox, is available on Amazon. And it's been getting some really amazing reviews. It's actually been a little bit overwhelming uh, and maybe too much to say in the middle of this interview. So we'll get back to it. But I did want to let you know it is available. It was a bestseller in six categories. And if you really enjoy this podcast, I think you will really enjoy this book. So please go check it out. Incredible. I have heard of the five to one ratio. I'm very familiar with it. I remember, especially in my relationship with my husband, one moment of Baby, the dishes aren't done. And then but the trash is taken out. Exactly. <laughs> and you gave me a kiss this morning. And you brushed your teeth. <laughs> Thanks for the coffee. And totally. one yeah. more, I love you. <laughs> it's not so important that the dishes aren't done. Yes, gorgeous. Yeah, exactly. And this is why I love acronyms or these little things that can be so helpful. And 
two things are coming to my mind right now. One is an email that dropped in from a coach that I follow who I really like. And I've actually seen this as a theme recently. So I think it might be in the ether, how to have difficult conversations and that it's often the thing that we push back. And he talks about in this email that it needs to be like a two minute fix. So that's one question that I have. The other question that I have, because I'd love to hear from your coach who you spend two hours walking in the woods with, totally my guy. Like, here we are. (laughs) Amazing work. Amazing. But also a great coach or a great teacher. And when the student is ready, the teacher will appear. You walk together. You hear enough from your client and understand them so empathically to know where they are and hear the struggle of where it is they want to go back to those best days, whatever it is, or the illusion of a best day they've never had, perhaps being relaxed about owning a business because you've never done it before and don't even know where to begin. You know what I mean? But the other question I have for you is the ages of the children that you're mostly working with or talking to, especially when it comes to difficult conversations. Because again, the conversation we might have with a three, or five-year-old, if you are familiar with Montessori, is in that absorbent plane, is going to be very different than the 10, 11-year-old, or even the 15-year-old who's back in that absorbent, very self-focused plane. So yeah, hearing about difficult conversations and also the ages of the children that you're working with. So my own personal background is post-primary. So that's 12 to 18. That's where I was a teacher. I now work in schools with really varied age groups. So with primary children too. So that idea of junior infants, four or five, up to 12. But it's trying to, I guess, translate the work we're doing in a way that someone can engage and hear. So I have a lovely program. It's one of my favorites. It's called On Safari with our Orpi Buddies. And we have five animals that we talk about and seeking to learn about the animals and how they might show up. And it's again, building that literacy or language for children in a way that they can hear it and wrapping it around. There's a beautiful story um, with conflict called Have You Filled Your Bucket Today? So the idea everyone in the world has an invisible bucket and we make deposits in the bucket and then sometimes our bucket is dipped or someone dips our bucket. And of course, the intention is maybe how we can replenish or how could we refill the bucket? And that idea of making amends and accountability. So when I work with young children, we talk about using the stories or the animals and I got inspired by this it was a blog I read once and they were talking about peace ones and again the idea just germinated I'm sure you know the way we get so much from everybody but that idea of having a heart wand and a star wand and with children when in conflict maybe inviting with the restorative questions which we might adapt but that idea of whoever is sharing might hold the heart wand and they're trying to share from their heart and we share from our heart and so again the clock was you 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 and the heart is trying to say how I feel I felt sad or I feel hurt so the heart wand and someone who's listening the L for listen trying to maybe hold the star wand they're trying to be the star listener as best as they can and they swap ones and using those little kind of ways to make it more accessible I found that to be helpful and again a lot of the places where I work should have a huge wisdom and expertise far beyond I'll have when I learn so much in all this with all the spaces that I get to work in but I guess had a lot of feedback around that kind of approach how it's been very helpful to support us around accessing these concepts and engaging in conversations around conflict beautiful Thank you for that. And it's reminding me of something we were talking about earlier, which is bullying. And I don't know what it's like in Ireland in the schools and so on, but 
For sure on social media, even adults, this is a thing. And it's a thing that we have not seen before. It's the technological age. So something, again, Montessori talks about, you can tell I'm a Montessori in here, but grace and courtesy, which is essentially a little bit of what you're talking about with, are you coming from the heart? What's the star of the matter? And I feel like we don't really have guidelines. We're all sort of making them. But at the end of the day, the really simple heart of the matter, is it necessary? Is it kind? (laughs) Does it need to be said, said by me, et cetera? Those questions, when we put a post out there, we put something in writing or we say something or we do something. And I think the other piece of that, which is unusual, so there's what's happening in the school, in the classroom, the connection with the teacher and between the children. But then there's what's happening on social media. As my mom, she said something to me recently, actually wrote me a letter, and I called her on it. And she said, well, I would never say that to your face, but since you're talking to me about it. (laughs) And I thought, this is so interesting, again, that we have a world where you can write and put out so many things, the infodemic. We can stay connected to thousands and hundreds and thousands of people when we put something out there. And of course, the spectrum, very quickly, it can be misconstrued, misinterpreted, et cetera, especially if it's coming into, say, a sick mind or an adolescent who's not feeling good and mental health and all those things. So I'd love to hear your thoughts on bullying and any wisdom you have to offer, because I think not just for children, but for adults, too. This is a very important topic right now. Yeah. Oh, listen, I know. It's that disconnect again, isn't it? Brenny Brown has a lovely expression. I'm sure you're maybe familiar in the fan, but people are hard to hate close up and move in. And moving into one another, even as the simple opportunities, like I mentioned in what's your favorite thing for dinner? That's how we move in and see ourselves in each other. Oh, my granny makes it. Are creating opportunities and nurturing empathy? But also in times of challenge where bullying happens. So one of the things that I find very difficult is, let's say, in our context, I don't know if you can relate, we have zero tolerance to bullying, anti-bullying guidelines, zero tolerance. And I'm thinking, well, how is that working for us again? Because usually what it does is it sends the behavior underground. We're not addressing the needs underneath what's driving it. So I think changing how we think about behavior, that believing that we're inherently good, what's shown up, where's the disconnect where that's shown up and trying to get to more of that root kind of cause and it's really hard when you're dealing with bullying situations especially in our context we're quick to lie and not tell the truth because I'd be in trouble right Um, and that's very challenging also when often addressing bullying situations in a school context the person who's been harmed which can sometimes be everybody but is left out of the equation so the students removed or sent home from school but removing a threat isn't the same as establishing that sense of safety when the student comes back or we're back in the room so it's not very effective and also parents often want zero tolerance until it's their kid and sometimes we want compassion so I think when we're talking about meeting so often a stimulus for a school they'll say we want something to support us with meeting bullying situations and I'll say okay and kind of like back to what we're talking about the foundation of that begins in the proactive all day every day so there's a triangle kind of metaphor, like the hierarchical of responses adapted from Tony Morrison, Dr. Belinda Hopkins. But that idea of having that proactive literacy and language, that connecting on purpose and also building understanding and goodwill around restorative practice and good times. If a parent's first time they've heard about this approach to support us with conflict or challenging situations is when there's love of their life has been involved in a big conflict. It's probably a very armored thing. It's probably less likely that I'm going to be open to this. I just want 
what did you do and how are we going to fix it? So one of the things in conversation, so let's say if I was facilitating a gathering where people were voluntarily decide they were going to come to find a way forward. One of the key things which you alluded to earlier on is, again, trying to look at how are people harmed? So one of the things we get quite attached to is who's to blame. And a reframe when working restoratively is how are people harmed? Who's harmed in the situation? And we know hurt people. It's very helpful when we look for that empathic response that we look at the harm. Again, even with children, I'll say to my little Alfie, my nephew, to say to this and mom didn't and they did and everyone's to blame and I'd say okay okay and I, but I can say well how's everyone sad now like you're sad too how are you so harm can be infinite it can be everybody's blame is usually proportionate and divisive so focusing on harm and then think of when we identify what the harm might be looking at well how could we move forward what are the needs of that harm so we often well I want five days suspension because I want people to know that that's not okay I'm thinking, well, what is the need there? The need is probably for safety. The need is for reassurance, acknowledgement. And so is there another way that we could try and support and meet those needs? So I guess it's partly why I really believe in that restorative approach, again, for meeting bullying situations. But one of the challenges is that people won't know how holistic that is. So I have a program I work with schools and it's called, it's Orky Mentor Program, inspired by Brené Brown. Be here, be you, belong. So it's a model around supporting students who identified and trained to be mentors and again they work with some of the younger children in the school around connection and belonging around listening skills around our problem solving wheel and things go wrong building that capacity so it's very much holistic proactive and then offering that listening ear or the mediation in times of challenge but I think it's that idea of that big picture, that holistic piece that schools need to commit to, as opposed to just learning tips and tricks or questions you'd ask in the time of challenge, because I think it can evaporate very quickly if we haven't got those structures or the reservoir in place to navigate it. But focusing on harm, I think, in times of bullying situations, separating the person from the behaviour and maybe a voice for those who've been harmed, how they've been affected. And they have a very so so I was really upset in situation in my school many years ago and really cruel what was happening to this boy in my class in my tutor class but we know evidence you couldn't prove it but it was a reoccurring issue and through a process bringing those who were part of the problem all together with supports and the young person when he shared his story how he was impacted I guess I could see it land in the person who had been part of the problem's face and she denied it she still said she didn't do it and I said well let's say if that had happened how do you think that would affect it we call him James and she said I'd say it'd be really really horrible and I tell you if I ever heard anyone say it again I'd tell them it wasn't true and she really meant that so in that situation she didn't tell the truth so it wasn't a perfect scenario but for him to hear that acknowledgement that she said that was a shitty thing to do and she'd never do it. As she heard anyone else say it, she'd tell them it wasn't true. That's what he needed, that acknowledgement for that bit of healing. And again, every context is different, but these, these are the things I learn and I watch. It's like you said, the witness we need. It's very hard to heal from something that's not acknowledged. And when our focus is on punishment and getting out of trouble, it's very hard to create a space and a cultivate a space where people will be accountable and own up to what maybe harms they've caused. But I think when we're focused on Again, allowing people, look, we make mistakes and part of what we're doing here as a young person growing in our brain and in our body and is to learn how to rectify them or make them better. So that's the kind of culture I think that our restorative approach um, flourishes in. Amazing. And I mean, as you were going into this 
specific story you were thinking about, that was what I was wondering about is what about in a specific context and what does validation look like? And exactly what you're talking about, sometimes it doesn't look perfect. We write the textbook how we want it to go. But the reality, real life, and these are the paradoxes of like when we actually apply something. And I'd love to hear a little bit more about identifying harm for everyone around the table, because I think that this is something that we need to remember. Everyone is affected. There is this ripple effect. I was listening to a really interesting story about a woman with dementia And her children were saying, and my grandma had dementia, and she was a very different person at the end of her life than she was in different chapters. And that's a different situation here. But again, the harm done, the ripple effect, especially when it comes to policy, or now it's going to be five days and those kinds of things. And I just love to hear, how do you support people, especially those who might feel they're not affected because they weren't the perpetrator, the perpetrated, they weren't the classroom teacher, they weren't the principal. They're not the top ones in the group, but they're in that class. They will never forget whatever decision is made or not made. It's like six degrees of separation. We're all connected, that holistic restorative. How do you help those, especially further out on the ripple, to process the harm and identify that they too might be grieving or empathizing or feeling something that they need support with. We're going to take a short break and I'm recording this from a beautiful garden, which reminds me so much of my grandma's garden and places where we go so much resonance for us. It's the smell, it's the touch, it's the look, it's the ambiance. And I invite you on a journey to some of my favorite places in my first book, The Adventure Paradox, available on Amazon. It's a bestseller in six categories and has been getting amazing reviews. But more than that, this book is meant in no small way to change your life. And the feedback from my clients and first readers is that it has and will. So you don't want to miss this one. Go check it out. For me and the work I do, we engage a lot in the circle process. Yeah, so circle process, I'm thinking of so many examples that just spring to mind here now, but that idea of having a process which can facilitate that awareness, that process in the collective wisdom and also the collective accountability of what needs to change in each of us to take care of all of us. But that circle practice, again, that's from Kate Pranis, but that idea of collective accountability and our interconnectedness. So having a process to support that. And I'm thinking of so many examples here, but I'm thinking of a very violent fight that happened in a school I was in once. And um, it was vicious. And there were racist slurs and there was spitting. And I remember afterwards the teacher, but the class, it was like, oh my God. And the two young men who were involved were from very troubled and conflict families in the community so we were worried about what would happen after the escalation of the violence outside the school and so in that particular incident these two young men were suspended as part of the policy in the school but also for health and safety reasons where we were thinking of how are we going to manage this as a school but one of the many processes that happened around that punitive response was also 
having a circle with the class before break time. <clears throat> and I was invited to facilitate that circle again. It's again, building capacity to facilitate such spaces over time. And it starts with the one word whiz. Where do you want to go for your dinner? We're not the person we're sitting in circle with a talking piece. But I remember just acknowledging for the group and um, the harm of what happened and um, the upset and also trying to invite the group when appropriate also think of okay how are we as a group going to try and minimize the damage of what happened and the group sharing things like well we probably shouldn't put on social media or escalate outside or also reflecting on when the two young men come back what do you think the needs might be on that day and them coming up the wisdom within the group of what emerged but also activating that that accountability within the group and then of course the young men when they came back the idea of supporting them in advance and bringing them together before we come back to the class so lots of scaffolds around how we're going to meet this restoratively I'm thinking of the power of the group so one of the things I love about that restorative approach is sharing and empowering the community so Martin Luther King is a lovely definition of power the ability to affect change and again, sometimes the ownership in schools is, I'm the teacher, I'm supposed to fix this. I'm the year head, I have to fix this. Was actually, well, as a group, so many incidents. I could tell you another story that's bringing to mind. I had this class for many, many years. I was mad about them and they were little, they were tough class as well. But the only way to have success was work restoratively, you know. But we were, my point is, so I had them in fifth year, right? First, second, third and fourth, fifth. It's not like we had a conversation around how we speech each other in our class and then we were perfect. No, this was something we revisited and we brought in together. Say, okay, lads, how are we getting on with our agreements? What are you thinking? There's no magic wands or unicorns, right? But the power of the group, there was this particular young man, I'll never forget the day. And I just came into class and I saw him. He was running out of the room crying. And I went after him and he's like, they slag my teeth, they slag my shoes, they slag, I can't take it anymore, I can't take it anymore. And he's like, I don't care. So his shoes weren't designer shoes or whatever, Nike or whatever. And my mom can't afford it and I don't care, but I can't take it. And he had a pre loads of past hurts around this. He'd only joined the class in, in fifth year. And I was like, oh God, I know, I know. And he was like, he said, can we have a circle around it? And I'm thinking to myself, oh my God, I don't know whether we can have a circle around this because I'm really panicking about the risk of this circle because they're all roaring laughing. The lads are roaring laughing that he's crying. And so I'm like, okay, I'm thinking about it. And again, spoke to the yearhead and these are my tutor groups. So I knew these really well, right? I knew these kids really well. And I know them on their best day and I know them on their off days, which this was. But I also know them on the best day. And there was this young man who I was mad about. He was amazing. He had amazing capacity to be restorative. Now, he could also be uh, front and centre of all the drama. Like, he's the one, everyone knows his name. He was so emotionally intelligent. And he had a great capacity to bring people with him. But he was roaring laughing now when your man's crying and what had happened was one of the kids in the class again complicated unmet needs I'd say that need for power and kept threatening messing to kind of hit him to hit him and it was happening all the time and this one day this time where your man stood up and then he, I'm probably not telling the story well he went to hit him again your man started crying and they thought this was hilarious so anyway I went and I found the class and I asked them would they be willing to have a circle and we'll call him Edison and I said Edison I need you to give me a hand with this one now okay and he was like yeah and so brought the lads together. We looked at what happened. I said, look how very brave it is that Jack has asked and invited and is willing to sit in their circle. And I really hope, I know he's on your best day. I know what gorgeous kids you are. I know but what happened is not okay. And we need to try and fix this now and find a way forward. But the young man who had been threatening to hit him, 
going around, he was like, grand, grand. Well, I'll just ignore him then. I'll just ignore him. I won't do it anymore. And the others in the peer group who had laughed at the time said, that's not okay. You can't just ignore him. He's in our class. And the group kind of picking up for him. Now they were laughing half an hour ago, right? But in this context, with the culture of the circle, again, they knew this process, but to see them and remind them of who they really were and what we are as a class, what we stand for. But that young man, I remember him coming to me and he was like, do you know what, Miss? That circle, he said, it changed my life. That circle changed his feelings. Good to have other people pick up for him. A five-day suspension of your man that was going to hit him was never going to offer him what here and other people in the circle did. And that, and those kind of experiences and examples that really helped me commit to the work that I get to do. And like I said, they're not perfect. And even at the time, I think, oh, is this risky? I'm nervous. So I really understand that concern. So I think there's so many variables that we need to scaffold and have in place before we might navigate into such spaces. I don't know what we would have done as a community without such process to support us to find a way forward but the intention wasn't on blame who's the baddie here it was on how are people harmed and what is that okay for us and how will we as a group fix it incredible I'm sorry I'm like moved to tears my glasses are fogging and I think what's coming to me is the beauty of seeing your students take on your teaching yeah and ask for it and use it and implement it and seeing how the circle changed their lives and thinking about how many people will listen to this and it will change their lives. And they're going to go to your website and look up these resources and understand how to implement circles, not only in their classrooms, in their families, in their corporations, you know, that this ripple effect when the work is working and we see and understand and truly feel at the heart the heart of the matter in the paradox of what's not working and then being able to identify, oh, this is how it does work and what could work. And I think we've been talking for an hour almost. Before you move on, I just want to say I learned from them probably more than they learned from me, just to say, I definitely want to put that out there. But yeah, yeah. So I'm not the unknowing one. It's the space itself that creates the opportunity for us all to learn with one another. Totally. But that's that's unbelievable, isn't it? It's (laughs) unbelievable. That symbiotic relationship again, though, of like, you suddenly realize my students are teaching me, my children are teaching me and in a good and beautiful, positive way. And maybe they're making the circle, they're developing more aspects. And this is how we pass things on generationally, good and bad, right? Good and bad. Speaking of the baddie, I'd love to hear a little bit more about the animal analogy, because you sort of touched on that. And I bet a lot of people, and I see your animals in the background. And no, I'm like, where's my puppets? Yeah, yes, I'm going to my puppets and everything. So I guess Marshall Rosenberg, so the giraffe, there's a story about the giraffe is the restorative animal. So you won't tell him I'm, I'm very tall, right? So over six foot, long neck. And as a kid, I was always slagged for me in a giraffe. And um, years later, I was going off doing a bit of volunteering in Africa. And my friend, a colleague in work, brought me um, Sophie, who's my giraffe. Kind of similar to this. She's not here. She's in my work bag. But Sophie to keep me company. And when I got trained in this first, you needed to talk to me. So I just happened to use my giraffe. And we had a group who were doing a master's in conflict resolution come to the school. And I ended up teaching that master's program. I didn't know a lot about it at the time. And they saw me doing the circle. They said, oh, Miss Stowe, we see you're using Rosenberg's giraffe. And I was like, what? Okay. And they told me that the giraffe was the restorative animal for two reasons. So the first is the giraffe has the biggest heart of all the land animals. And working restoratively, it's trying to work from that heart space. 
And the second is that it has a long neck. So with his long neck, you can see everybody's perspective, a key component of perspective taken. And so that's from Martin Rosenberg's Nonviolent Communication. So it was a kind of nod to the universe again, the giraffe. So I had to stop to tell family and friends, stop buying me giraffe. I have enough giraffes in my life. Everywhere in this house is giraffes, but I love them. But the giraffe, and then of course, in an adaptation of that is the giraffe and the jackal is the croc. So the croc is kind of snappy. And again, I have my puppets usually, and they're kind of snappy and the crocs is very you oriented. You did this. You talk and you'd be in trouble. You didn't clean the dishwasher. And again, that idea when we talk like a, a croc, they usually talk back like a croc. So again, how's the language we're using? You, 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 or maybe the giraffe with this big heart might say, use I and say, look, I'm worried we're not going to get this done. If you don't do this, you'll be in big trouble. I'd love us to work together. Oh, well, I've done all my exams. It's up to you or whatever. It's just the language we use, the literacy. Then we have the guard dog and the wise owl. So again, this is that idea of, I guess, adapted from Daniel Siegel's hand model of the brain. And again, mind up uses animals to support us with that prefrontal cortex, which is our wise owl, makes good decisions. But of course, the wise owl can fly away and we're in our guard dog. And the guard dog is like a tacky. But what does the guard dog need? The guard dog needs to feel safe. So again, for the wise L to come back. So then we use this a lot when we talk about timing or at the time, maybe it's in my guard dog when I dipped your bucket and now I'm in the wise L or if I was in my wise L, what would I do? And then we have hedge and hog in our safari. Hedge and hog are hedgehogs and hedge and hog are kind of prickly and they kind of prickle and they fight like this. But of what we're trying to get hedge and hog to do is when they're feeling safe, just talk in their soft bellies because the soft bellies are where connection. So what makes us prickly and then, of course, how do we share? What happens when we when we're able to share from our soft bellies? And Brenny Brown has a lovely analogy as well. She talks about strong back, soft belly, with conflict. The stronger my back feels, the softer my belly can be. So when I have a literacy, a language, when I have experiences, when I have support that strengthens my back and I'm easier. So that allows me to tolerate the risk of showing my belly a bit more. And I think of that all, all the time as a motif in the work I do, strengthening the back so we can have the soft bellies. But again, the animals are a great way in to just thinking about the brain, our behaviours, timing, our literacy, and again, what our intention is, as opposed to the prickles. Michelle, that was beautiful. And I'm going to encourage our listeners who are not watching to come and find the video on social media. <laughs> is that my talk with my hands? <laughs> well, because you are, you're using your hands and it's so beautiful. And I think for people not to miss it, because especially, you know, when you're working with an animal, we talk a lot about this with horses, but palm open is scary, cat attack, palm closed and in invites your prey animal horse to to come into you. So I am really going to encourage people That's to come gorgeous, yeah. see your body language. Hear about also, my hand movements, yeah. <laughs> I'm a huge fan, by the way, of the nonviolent communication. I remember listening to that one over and over his like CD series and just taking it to the heart and feeling like more people need to know about this work. So I love how you've taken that in and just I'm so glad I asked about the animals too, because your demonstration of it was beautiful. And there's one last thing that I want to ask you, and then I want to make sure that if we've missed anything, you have a moment to share that. But I saw on your email that you've done a TED Talk. Will you tell yeah. us about the experience of a TED Talk? And I also just want to reflect on the fear people have about getting up on a stage and speaking to people. Yeah. And that that's very unusual, as you are very unusual. And what a gift to have an idea worth sharing. And I'd love to hear a little bit more about your TED Talk process. And for sure, we'll put that in the show notes so people can go and watch. 
Yeah, I was on my vision board. I love the TED Talks. And um, I had a huge issue public speaking, even as a teacher, speaking in the staff room. In the classroom, grand staff room, I get the sweats, the dry mouth, and it can still creep up in me. I know it can still creep in there in, in situations where it will start in my head. But that was a huge a huge personal kind of I don't know accomplishment I don't know how to what to say but I felt great ease when I did my TED uh, X talk and I don't know I practice and practice but I often practice and practice and this still happens but it didn't happen that day I think the more I practice like again that idea of waiting till you're bulletproof and perfect should we never get there I say to the kids all the time so when I used to present to staff again I get the shakes and when we're, we're sharing in circles or we're learning anything I share that because I can relate to that feeling but the TEDx was again on the vision board I would have loved the opportunity and and I applied with the idea of sharing my passion for restorative practice. And again, it was talking about empathy as the heart of difficult conversations. So much of what we've kind of shared here today. And I guess I use it. I used a good anecdote story about a student I had, Lauren, and she didn't do her homework one day. And I flipped my lid when I approached it very unrestoratively, even though I was the poster girl for RP at the time. And I did my best. I was tired. My mom wasn't well. And again, I escalated the conflict there hugely. And the next day I'm like, OK, how will I do it differently? And again, I give that little example. So what I noticed is that was years ago and it's probably a handy resource for people who are committing to restorative practice. I'd get that feedback a bit, but they always say about Lauren. Oh, my God, I have a Lauren. I have Lauren. I, it's always the story. They don't remember all the mechanics. It's the Lauren that they relate to. I remember in Eddie Rockets, it's a, a restaurant here. I don't know if you've been, like Johnny Pockets, I think, in America. But anyway, we had a laugh. She was like, man, was saying like a cheeky little rip. And I said, no, you weren't. I was a cheeky little rip too. But we had a laugh about it. But it was an opportunity for connection because we got on better since the second day than ever. But that was the TED Talk. And like I said, I can really relate to the nerves. And it still happens. I have confidence now. Our keynote now coming up. And I've to manage that talk. That's with the wins journal. I try and what we were talking about to try and remind myself. And even if it's not perfect, even if I am nervous, you're so. I know that my intention will be to serve or contribute. And it's okay to be nervous or to be quaky, isn't it? It's not a bad thing. Sometimes that's a human connection, isn't it? So, but yeah, that was the TEDx talk. Yeah. So it's on YouTube. I love it. I love it. And I can't wait to go check it out. And yeah, I have loved this conversation so much. Oh, so why? Great. I had a great time. I can't believe we're an hour in already. Can't. We could chat forever. I can tell. <laughs> yeah. I, I really, I hope we'll do it again because it was yes. such a pleasure and you have so you many gifts to offer. And I'm just so grateful for your work and that searching for scale brought us together. I know. <laughs> that's, that's, I want to hear about your scale. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I'm gonna have to work on that. Podcast <laughs> on your scale, yes. Oh, would you look at that? This is lucky. <laughs> oh, look, oh, you're gorgeous. Looks... He's this beautiful. Is... It's time to take a walk, Michelle. Yeah, time to take a walk. Okay, lucky. <laughs> enjoy your walk. Enjoy your walk and your cuddles. And Cal, it was lovely to meet you. Goodbye to everybody out there. And we'll get to connect again soon. Thank you so much for the chance to chat. Thank you so much, Michelle. And I'll ask for all this info to put in the show notes. But just in case someone's listening and they want to go find you right now, yeah. what website would you send them to? Go ahead. Connect RP for restorative practice, connectorp.ie. That's the Irish kind of website. So connectorp.ie, you'll find all the goodies there. <laughs> I have a blog there and I have little videos and stuff. So you might find something of interest. Fantastic. Thank you so much. And I appreciate the adventure that you've chosen and that you're sharing it with us. Keep going. Thank you. Thanks so much. You too. Bye, Bye everybody. Bye. <laughs>
Okay, the time has come for us to end this podcast episode. Thank you so much for listening. You listened all the way to the end. I appreciate you. And if you loved this podcast, please share it with a friend. Drop me a review. We all love five stars. But any stars, any feedback is welcome as a guest in the guest house of Rumi's poem, which you can find in my virtual workshop on catcaldwellmyers.com. We'd love to see you there if you want to continue the party and have an adventure of a day.